came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Metting. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Season 8, finally, we're here, you know, we've reached Season 8, very exciting. Very exciting. Season 7 was fun, but it seemed like it went on forever. True, actually, I don't know what happened there. No, it it is not the reflection on our guests, though, it is the reflection on us, I think. I think the reading was very dense, and, like, the books were pretty intense, so we maybe brought it on ourselves, like a real slog for the season. It was great, I learned a lot. But it was hard going sometimes. Yeah, for sure. But it was great to play with Camilo, so, you know. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully everybody enjoyed that season. We got to read a lot of exciting books and really appreciate all of our guests, many of whom were authors of the books we were reading, which was super exciting. But this season, season eight, we're into a new year. We're moving away from reading. Although, of course, knowing Ksenia and I will end up talking about books a lot, right? But in this new season, we want to focus on a theme that has not really become prominent yet in disaster studies, but that Ksenia and I and many of our comrades have been talking about. If you read any of our papers, you'll notice it. It's the theme of solidarity. And I hope that many of us accept that we can really only think about disaster risk and root causes when we recognize our ties and interconnectedness with each other. Solidarity and vulnerability go hand in hand, and there's so few conversations about this, we thought we would try to address this in the whole season eight of Disaster Deconstructed. We thought that we would address this through a whole season of Disasters Deconstructed. Uh, For sure, right? We really know how to have fun. (laughs) (laughs) You've been sarcastic. Absolutely not. Me, sarcastic, never. So in this season, we've got some really exciting guests for you to talk about justice networks, the meaning of being comrades, the ideas of anarchism and all the other really fun stuff. But today I'm super excited that we get to open the season with our friend and comrade, Dr. Jacob Remus. Welcome, Jacob. Hello, thank you. Hey, it's so Welcome. great to have you on the podcast, finally. Yeah. So Jacob is an associate professor at Gallatin, New York University. He's a historian of modern North America with a focus on urban disasters, working class organization, and migration. Jacob is the co-editor with Scott Niles and Kim Fortune of the Penn Press book series, Critical Studies in Risk and Disasters. And he serves on the board of the Labor and Working Class History Association. And he was also a founding member of the Southern Labor Studies Association and the Labor Research and Action Network. And now Jacob is one of the founding editors of the new Journal of Disaster Studies. Don't forget to submit your papers. Little plug there. Welcome, Jacob. It's really great to have you today. Thank you. It's really fun to be here. And I will say there's nothing more fun than spending a season talking about solidarity. The nice thing about talking about solidarity, which I guess we'll get to, is that it's actually like the good and optimistic and like happy part of talking about disasters. Usually disaster talk is like doom and gloom and suffering and unhappiness and nothing working. But when we talk about solidarity, we get to talk about people coming together and working together and making their lives better. And that really what could be better than that. 
Oh, wow. That is a lot of optimism for the kind of opening of the season. I don't think we've ever had such optimistic openers before, so yay. <laughs> Jacob, before we get into it about solidarity, perhaps you can share with us a bit about how you came to study disasters. Yeah, so I think like a lot of people of our generation, at least a lot of Americans of our generation, I became a disaster scholar because of Katrina and because I was in graduate school when Katrina happened. And I was like, whoa, what is this thing that's going on? I've actually been thinking about this a lot because the professor who stars in the story just retired. And so we got to do the thing that when senior faculty retire, all of her students come back and we get to tell nice stories about her and make mm. her feel good. Like it's a funeral, but they're still alive. It's <laughs> much better. You get to say nice things to people's face. But anyway, I was, it was my second year of grad of my PhD program. And I was taking a class with a wonderful urban historian of the United States named, named Sally Deutsch. And it was a class on urban North American history. And one of the books that we were slated to read from the beginning was Carl Smith's book about, imagine, I can't remember the name of the title, but Imagination of Urban Disorder. And a third of that book is about the aftermath of, or about the Chicago fire and its aftermath. And when Sally was introducing it on the first day of class, it was right after Katrina had struck. And there was all of this news about, uh, in, that, in those first weeks, about people behaving like animals and raping and murdering and looting and going crazy. And it was this idea, it was this very sort of Hobbesian idea of the state had disappeared. And when the state disappeared, people revert to their animalistic uh, state of nature. And, but one of the things that, that Smith talks about in his book is how in the, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Chicago fire, there were all of these stories, both of looting and of vigilante violence against looting. And he circulated a lot, and they were all fiction. And so he talks about it as a way of talking about anxieties, about modernization and urbanization. And Sally says to us, as she's introducing the book on the first day of class, mark my words, all of this that we are hearing that's coming out of New Orleans is going to be untrue. And as we know, sure enough, it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was what we might call looting. There was people taking things out of stores because they, it was needed. There was salvage. Redistribution. But, and there was, yeah, redistribution. And there was some violence against women. But most of the violence that happened in, in flooded New Orleans was, as is often the case, violence by the police against mm -hmm. citizens. And then just a few weeks after that, there were all of these stories about self-organization and about what actually happened in flooded New Orleans, which was people taking care of each other mm -hmm. and acting in solidarity. And so I wrote a paper for that, for Sally's class about disasters, a historiographical paper. And what I did and did not find, bringing myself into the disaster literature with no aid because I wasn't working with disaster people. And then from there, I built my dissertation. And I realized that the initial question I was asking, which was, how do people behave when the state disappears? was not actually a very good question because it turns out the state doesn't actually disappear in disaster. And so what I wrote essentially turned into the first chapter of the dissertation in the book, which was sort of those first few hours, what happens in the first few hours, emergent organizations, the sort of immediate post-disaster solidarity, the failure of disaster managers to actually get anything done. And then the rest of the book was moving beyond those first few days or first few hours into days, months, weeks, years. But the answer to your question, Jason, is... 
I have seen throughout my, my scholarly adulthood, all of the like mounting, both mounting disasters and also mounting attention to disaster. And so even though I keep saying, I'm going to leave the disaster world, like I'm going to leave disaster scholarship, I'm going to do other things. I keep being pulled back in because disasters keep happening and it keeps seeming like there is use for the sorts of inter interventions and analysis that I'm That's great. I mean, so many people threaten to <laughs> threaten to leave disaster study, but no, <laughs> there's no way out. It's kind of it's really, really kind of depressing, right? Like it's depressing not only because you're studying suffering, but also because whenever there's mass suffering, all of a sudden, like we have to be careerist about it. And it's like at moments when all I want to do is like watch just as a news consumer or just as a citizen, like, oh, that's when I need to be a public intellectual. And that's sort of what I'm trying to escape. I want to talk about your book, you know, the book that you've alluded to. And I've just finished reading. Yay, here we go. The proof. Thank you so much for sending it to me. I really, really enjoyed it. So, yeah, thank you. It, it, oh, it, it well, thank you. Really I'm happy great. to send it. Yay. I can't send um, you one, Jason, because I sent Ksenia my last copy. <laughs> okay. And I absolutely shamelessly asked for it as well, you know, <laughs> because I am shameless like that when it comes to books. So anyhow, in the intro, you write that your purpose was to, and I quote, excavate networks of community obligation and solidarity, end of quote. And you explain that it is in disasters that people really take a record of solidarity and care for each other. And you also write that you focus on everyday forms of solidarity, meaning, again, I quote, horizontal reciprocal care, a care for someone or a fight for someone or a connection with someone, not out of charity and sympathy, but of identity and empathy, end of quote. And I really love this meaning. You know, it kind of, it captures everything that perhaps we don't talk about when we talk about solidarity, because it kind of, it's becoming this big word, you know, that people are really unsure about. So tell us more, you know, why was solidarity so central to this book in particular and generally to your, to your other work and to your thinking? Yeah, so I'm trained as a labor historian. And that, that was the training I was getting as I, as I learned, as Katrina happened. And solidarity is obviously one of the key words in the labor movement. And kind of, I think one of the ways I think about there's a group in the United States called Jobs with Justice, which is sort of a, an organization that tries to build more movement culture and more movement into the labor movement. And one of the things that Jobs with Justice at least used to ask people to do, I don't know if it still does, is sign something called the Solidarity Pledge, which was that every year you would show up for five, pe five other people's fights, include, plus your own. And the idea was that what motivates the labor movement is solid, is this action in which people fight for each other, not because, oh, we feel bad for the telecom workers or we feel bad for the academic workers, but because we understand that their fight is our fight. And that's true across gender lines. That's true across race lines. That's true across industry and skill lines within the labor movement. And this is really kind of the building block of, of the labor movement. And it's what I, it's kind of what I swim in politically. And so when I started working on this book, I realized that I didn't have a very good definition of disaster. I didn't have a kind of a, I had a slogan version of it. And I had a marching in the street version of it, including that, that solidarity pledge that Jobs with Justice does. But I didn't have like a, a really good, well thought out definition. 
And so I ended up finding and really and relying with and in that sentence that you read, I cite an article by Scott and Lind that he wrote in a in 1986. And Scott and Lind is really one of the true heroes of American academia in the 20th century. He actually he just died the, the two weeks before Thanksgiving. And so I've been thinking a lot about him. He um he died in his 90s, so it's not like a great tragedy. But he he was someone who he was trained as a historian. He wrote a really important intellectual history of the American Revolution and he got fired from Yale, where he was an assistant professor, because he was too far left. And one of the main things that he did was go and tour um, with an avowedly communist fellow historian, Herbert Applecker, that he went to go tour North Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And then he came back. He talked about it, and he wouldn't, he didn't believe in things like grading, and he really, and he was an active supporter of the labor movement at Yale, and they got rid of him. And he was kind of blacklisted from the labor, from the academia. And so he and his wife, Alice, end up moving to moving to Youngstown, Ohio, where they become these really important movement intellectuals and lawyers. So he spent most of his career as a labor lawyer, push it, creating and talking about this thing called solidarity unionism. And sorry, I, I go off about him mostly because I've been thinking about him because he just died. <laughs> and also because he's one of these people who really walked the walk, right? Like for him, solidarity was not just something that you wrote about or something that you thought about or something that you described in others. It was what he lived his life doing. Anyway, so he has this article called Communal Rights, which is actually a law review article. It's about how to shift rights thinking and rights talking from the very individualist idea that we have in most of American jurisprudence to a collective sense of rights. And he has a definition of solidarity that has three parts. One that is that solidar in, in solidarity, individual, the individual and the group aren't antagonistic, right? That that it's not a trade-off between individuals and groups. It's that the individual benefits from the group and vice versa. The third, but conversely, or he says dialectically, it's also something that is enacted by individuals. And that there's this sort of thing that you have to do where each individual has to do something maybe that in the short term is going to hurt themselves, like go on strike or not cross a picket line, but in the long term is going to benefit themselves through benefiting the group and benefit the group through bene through benefiting themselves. But that the crucial thing, this is kind of, this is actually his second, I, I've given you the amount of order, because the crucial thing is the second point, which is that it's built not on ascriptive characteristics or not out of obligation and that kind of out of a negative duty but based on shared experience and the sense of being the same so he has this metaphor that like brothers don't love each other because they feel sorry for each other or because there's an obligation to love each other they love each other because they have this shared experience of family and workers express solidarity because they have a shared experience of work and people who have been through disaster express solidarity or feel solidarity because they have the shared experience of going through disaster and that's my addition that's not his that's not him <laughs> but to me that idea that solidarity happens and that what we often call post-disaster altruism happens not because we feel sorry for each other or because we feel a duty to help, or because we're being nice, but because fundamentally the fight to survive of our neighbor is also the fight to survive of ourselves. And we recognize that inherent connection, that inherent similarity 
between us and our neighbor, between us and our even neighbor, really broadly speaking, around the world, seems to me to be the really key thing that you don't get when you talk about, oh, social networks, or you talk about social capital, or you talk about emergent networks, right? Like those are so dry and academic and divorced from the experience of struggle. But of course, survival after dis in disaster after disaster is struggle. It's struggle just as struggle after the when a plant closes is struggle. So that's where really I draw from. I'm really glad we got to have this conversation right after Stockton Lynn died. Let me talk about him. You know, I find it fascinating how we keep coming back to this conversation about love and kind of empathy and humility over and over again, you know, in various topics that, that we've been raising in previous seasons. And these are just like solidarity. These are the things that kind of, as academics, we're almost not allowed to express right and it's it's just bizarre because i guess it's just really emotional i mean why do you care about struggle when all you should care about is objective research in your career and i yeah i find it really quite unsettling that we don't yeah, I, mean, I mean one of the other answers is that we're people also right and we're also part of this we're also part of a struggle i don't need to tell you because any who's like on and off strike perpetual right? strike <laughs> on, and off, on and off strike your whole career right and like then i'm also building a union and we are also part of that struggle. And I think when we are honest as academics, when we are honest with ourselves, we see these questions of love and solidarity and care as not just the things that other people do, but the things that like make our lives possible also. I wanna to come to to talk more about solidarity for us, those who are in the academy and disaster scholarship. And what you're saying, it reminds me of like my own journey and how I changed my outlook on humanity because of how people come together after disaster. And I really had a warped, maybe propagandized version of human behavior and our core values and instincts until I really got into the field and looked at how people actually behave towards each other and realized that shared struggle you're talking about actually allows people who are sharing that experience to tap into what I think is their core, into what their actual humanity is. And that what and then usually they return to what we call normality, which is like competition and individualism and all that shit. But they don't yeah, have well to, you know. Yeah, right. I mean, I think we think about the famous Thatcher quote about how there's no such thing as society. Yeah, yeah. And what disaster shows is that not only is that ideologically evil, but it's also just wrong. Yeah. Right. Like, in fact, there is such a thing as society and we see it in these moments of stress. Yeah. I mean, the last three years, we see it in a moment of epidemic and pandemic where like it turns out that what we do does affect the people, everyone else. Yeah. Like it or not, right? You can say, you can scream about individualism all you want, but the truth is we do live in a society and our entire lives, the most powerful people and the most powerful institutions have been trying to teach people a lie, uh, not just like a bad ideology, but an objective factual lie, which is people can survive on their own. People do survive on their own and nobody survives on their own. Mm. But to me... One of the compelling things about disaster scholarship, as you're saying, Jason, is like you have to, there's no way that you can study disaster 
without seeing it. So let's talk about what this means for scholars. I know you've been focusing a lot on how disasters are are political, and we talk about it often on the show. But when we bring this into the academy, into the way we do our work, we get a lot of pushback and get kind of blamed for making everything ideological. And so like when we have these um, divisions, even within the academy or within disaster scholarship, it's really hard to see a, a common pathway towards justice. I just wonder how you think we can move towards solidarity in disaster scholarship within the academy. How do we break down these barriers between us and people who see disasters as, as politics, as super ideological and not something we should do in science? That's a really good question. My answer comes from the fact that I was trained as a labor historian. And in the U.S., labor history is a really is a very movement-based field. So the Labor and Working Class History Association, which is the the professional organization of labor and working class historians, we are very explicit that that our job is to produce a usable past for the labor movement. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, that, in fact, it doesn't mean that we only say good things about the labor movement. In fact, a big part of producing a usable past is to talk about bad parts of the labor movement and there are times when it's failed, both failed kind of ideologically or morally, as in racist exclusions or sexist exclusions, but also when it's failed materially, which is obviously most of the time. And so I was kind of intellectually raised in this tradition where the criticism, you're being too political or you're being too presentist, just didn't didn't have any purchase. It wasn't a critique that was made. If anything, I was the one who was irritated that conferences have like too much about contemporary labor struggles and not enough about the New Deal or not enough about the Progressive Era or the pre-Civil War period. Like we're supposed to be historians. We're not just supposed to be listening to organizers. But one of the things I was kind of trained to do was think about what in my work was going to be useful for organizers. And so that is also how I approach disaster studies. And it's how I approach, I mean, I do or do not always succeed, but I try always to do the scholarship that is going to be most useful to the people who are suffering, the people who are closest to the trouble. And if that's not what you're doing, what's the point? Like if you are studying disaster and your goal isn't to decrease suffering, why go through the effort of studying disaster? And I guess what someone might say is there are technocratic ways of reducing suffering. You can do it with engineering. You can do it. You don't have to do it politically. But I actually, I mean, I guess my answer is I just think that's empirically wrong. I don't think that you can decrease suffering without politics. One of the things I teach in my first year labor history class, and we study the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. And what happens afterwards, which is Frances Perkins, who is at that point a young labor reformer. She ends up the first woman in the American cabinet. She ends up the secretary of labor in the, under Franklin Roosevelt. But this is before that. And she says, all right, well, this she happens to be in Washington Square Park when the Triangle Fire happens. And so she watches it and she is moved to try to do something with it. And she really doesn't trust politicians. She thinks that politicians are corrupt. She thinks that they do bad things. And so she tries to set up a factory commission that's going to reform factories and make them safer without any politicians. And you know what you can't get through a state legislature is something that doesn't have any politicians. It doesn't have any buy-in from politicians. And so she ends up having to work with key New York state politicians 
who basically teach her, like, you can't just be apolitical. There's no such thing as being apolitical. You have to work through politics if you want to do anything. And they end up in this kind of odd bedfellows coalition that then actually really shapes both her, she ends up in government, and shapes them. And they, one of them, Robert Wagner, becomes the author of the Wagner Act, becomes this major labor politician. If we all have the same goal of reducing suffering, the only way you're going to reduce suffering is by making poor people less poor, by making powerless people less powerless, by redistributing vulnerability so that it is less equal in the world. And none of those things are going to happen without politics. But it's so convenient, though, right, not to kind of get politics involved. And I think that's part of the scientific, I use it in quotation mark, issue here. And that really, if we talk about sort of building solidarity towards reducing disaster risks, right, or towards reducing root causes of disaster, then we're building solidarity towards abolishing capitalist state, which is, you know, very yeah. uncomfortable thing to say, right? Like every time I say this at the conference, people are like, oh, you know, how dare you? Surely you can't do that, you know? <laughs> Well, I mean, the surely you can't do that might also be right, right? Like, it's really easy yeah, for sure, me. Yeah, sure, right, I wish. <laughs> right? Like, it's really easy for me as a professor at New York University, like, collecting my tuition blood money to, like, say, yes, I want to work towards ab abolishing the capitalist state. There's also, like, a cheapness, and I totally agree that we are building, that if we want to decrease disaster risk in a serious way, it means ending capitalism. It means ending white supremacy. It means ending patriarchy. It means ending like the global colonial system. Um, and we may or may not succeed in, in whatever comes after capital in, in creating whatever comes after capitalism, but we're, we also understand what creates risk, right? We've understood what creates disaster risk for a long time. And you're not going to decrease the root causes of disaster in the current system. Let's talk a little bit more about capitalism, because this is the one of the concerns that I have among many other concerns. What I'm worried about is that solidarity is kind of may end up being used, just like resilience or vulnerability, right, or care, as a kind of this neoliberal Machiavellian tool, which really serves up this fantasy of independent individual, right? And, you know, we've seen this with charity, for example, as well, where it becomes like a box ticking exercise, you know, I've done charity and, you know, good for me, I feel good about myself. I stood in solidarity, good for me, you know, feel good about myself. I don't know, maybe I even came on a picket line, unlikely, but still. How do we avoid that? How do we avoid that cooptation of idea of solidarity? I, the short answer is, I don't know, right? I think this is the constant risk. I might unfairly say that it's not that resilience became a buzzword that became denuded of meaning, it's that it always was, and which, which might be unfair. But I used to teach in my disaster studies class, I used to just teach an entire semester and never talk about resilience. And then I realized that my students like, we're swimming in this phrase and I needed to like have a week <laughs> about why I don't like resilience. But anyway, so there's the short answer is I don't know. But to me, the way of doing it is to stay grounded in the struggle, right? That solidarity is something that has to be constantly built and rebuilt. And that's true on an everyday basis. That's true in our own communities and unions. 
But it's also true between us and the people we study or us and the people whose disaster risk we are seeking to alleviate or whose suffering we're trying to alleviate. The people who have more money and more power constantly have to be working to give up that power, constantly to make sure that they are doing, they are mobilizing their own privilege and their own resources in the way that the people who they're acting in solidarity with want them to do it. I think it takes work and I think it takes effort. And I think it takes a lot of discomfort on the part of the scholar. Oh, I also think that can be overstated in the end as a scholar, I don't have very much power, including when I go into a community, like in some way to study them, in some ways I have power, but in the end, they're really the ones who have power. They can choose to participate in my work or not. And I am wholly dependent on whether someone will speak to me. And that gives them a lot of power. But to me, part of it is trying to remain in, not just in dialogue, but working with organizations that organize people who are at risk, because that's the way I remain accountable to people. When in 2012, when Hurricane Sandy hit New York, a friend of mine said, isn't resilience going to just become sustainability? Another like empty slogan word. And I said, no, there's like a specific technical meaning to it. It could never become an empty buzzword. And obviously I was wrong. Again, because in retrospect, I think it was always an empty buzzword. So it's hard for me to imagine that the idea of solidarity, which is so intrinsically political and comes out of a political movement, how could that possibly be how could that possibly become an empty buzzword but if like feminist care ethics can become an empty buzzword then anything can so i don't really know what do you all think the sort of connected phrase that i think is going that way is mutual aid oh yeah because sure. especially like in the last few years where it's starting to be deployed in a way that's far away from its actual meaning yeah absolutely i think it's these lists that popped up in during the COVID, I was going to call them COVID lockdowns, but at least in my country, there was never actually a COVID lockdown, but whatever, the COVID, the high COVID is what I call it, that in this moment of high COVID, these lists of like, oh, mutual aid for our baristas, give them money. There's nothing mutual about that. That was just charity. And it's fine. Like, I'm glad people did it. That was nice for the baristas who got the money, but like, there's no mutuality to it. It was not real. So yes, I think Jason, you're totally right that there is a danger to that. I also, so I have a student right now, Michaela Siminski, who's doing a master's thesis with me about Occupy Sandy. And one of the things that she's really wrestling with is that the people who were, despite the slogan of Occupy Sandy, which was solidarity, not charity, and it was premised on the ideas of mutual aid. In the end, the people who were active in Occupy Sandy did not live in the neighborhoods that were most affected mm -hmm. by Sandy. Which, I mean, it makes sense if you think about it, right? Like the people whose houses were flooded didn't have a lot of time to do the organizing work. They were dealing with their own houses. And it was people who literally came from further up or further inland in New York who were not flooded. They were the ones who were doing the work of Hurricane Sandy. And so one of the things she's really wrestling with is like, what does it mean to call this mutual aid? Is it mutual aid? Because it wasn't mutual, right? Like the Occupy Sandy people were not being aided by, by the recipients of their help. So maybe it was just charity. But I think one of the things that made it different from a pure charity response was that it had political motivations, right? It had political ideology, it had political motivations, and they worked 
because it was Occupy, they talked about themselves and they talked about the ideology constantly. And they were really focused on how do we do this thing differently? Even though we're outsiders, how do we act in solidarity with the people who are suffering? And there's an example, this is, this is kind of an answer to last question about politics. I think that what made Occupy Sandy successful when nothing else in New York and New Jersey was successful at that in that moment was not that they were insiders in the community, but that they were thinking about everything they did politically. This is such a great start to the season because many of these things we're going to pick up on and unpack as we talk through the season with our guests. And I'm just super excited that, you know, we got to kind of highlight the role of politics in the discourse around disasters and solidarity, you know, and what, why it's important. So thanks for bringing this to us today, Jacob. My pleasure. This was really fun. It's really nice to talk about my book, which I, like my first book, which I feel like I don't get to talk very much about. Thank you for uh-huh, but then you come on disaster to construct it. Here we are. All right. Yeah, thanks so much, Jacob. Thank you. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Ms. Jason and me, Jacob Remus, on Disasters Deconstructed podcast.